Well, there are some good churches in Hawaii, I do know that, and uh, some of them reasonably large churches, so I pray that they got their gospel. It's good to be able to be here tonight and have you folks with us, and tonight we'll find ourselves in the third chapter of the book of Revelation, and we're looking at the last of the seven churches, the last of the seven. Now, my wife got me a clock, and uh, she said she set the alarm on it. I don't know if she did or not. I try to watch it. I try to be accurate. But um, my son reminded me of the time when I was pastoring in Virginia, we didn't have a clock like this church doesn't have one. And uh, I always would take a, a lozenger. And when the lozenger ran out, I knew that it was time to quit. Well, that worked good many, many years. But then one day, somehow or another, I, I put a button in my mouth. <laughs> And he said I went on for three hours. So I'm glad to have a clock. (laughs) We'll not take a chance on that. If you have that little outline on the seven churches, you'll notice the parallel between the book of Revelation chapter 2 and 3 and Matthew chapter 13 where Christ gives the parables. And chapter 12 of Matthew is a pivotal chapter. That's where the unpardonable sin was committed when the the Jews accredited the miracles that Christ did to the devil. And uh, things changed. And from that point on, the church had the mystery for him and he taught in parables. The parable that you noticed here, the seventh line, seven, it says dragnet. Now that's not the old television program that we used to watch. I don't know when that was, but I knew they had one. And, uh, and then it's not the dragnet they put out you know, when they're trying to catch a criminal. But when you read that, you'll find that dragnet is a fishing uh, method of catching fish. And it well pictures this church because when they would throw the net out, they'd bring in all kinds of catch. They'd have good fish and bad fish. They kept the good and threw the bad away. And uh, that's what this age is like. It's like this today. We're living in this age. That there's so many that profess to be Christians. In fact, back in about the turn of the century, maybe a little bit before, and I'm talking about the last century. (laughs) I haven't even realized they have a new one. But um, anyhow, the... the, uh, the word Christendom 
I don't know if you're familiar with that word. You'll see it in writings often. And a lot of people have the idea that Christendom refers to Christians, but that's not necessarily so. Now, there are Christians within Christendom, but most of Christendom are not saved. They're professors, but not possessors of salvation. And uh, this church here pictures so much of that. But let's begin as we look here in Revelation chapter number 3, and we're looking first at beginning in verse 14. This, this stand is either too stiff. Oh, there we go. Maybe if I do it like my dinner plate, I won't spill it all over the place. Uh, the message to Laodicea, and unto the angel of the church of the Laodiceans. So let's, let's first mention a little bit about this assembly so you're somewhat familiar as we did each week. We talked a little about about the city. This city was about 45 miles southeast of Philadelphia, and this is the last one we'll look at. It makes like a, a, a crescent. It goes from Ephesus up and down the other side of the mountain, and this is in a valley, but it's in an area of the valley that is what they call a confluence. My folks back in Pennsylvania uh, came from a town called Confluence. In fact, if you remember when that plane crashed, that was one of the closer towns that in Somerset uh, where the plane crashed on, on when the uh, uh, rebellion took place. But anyhow, the, uh, the Confluence, uh, the town there is called Confluence where my, my folks are from told you the other week that uh, my ancestors uh, came back in the 1700s uh, from Jersey, and they started the Turkey Foot Baptist Church. They called it Turkey Foot because of that valley, uh, the geographical outlook that called it confluence where the rivers there came together. Here, roads came together. And so this city was a city of a, conf, a confluence, uh, or, or, um, confluence, yes, and it was where these roads came together, and it made it a, a great trading center. Uh, this uh, city was very wealthy, had a lot of bankers and financiers, and and they would uh, pool their money often and and do public projects. They would build libraries and big public buildings and parks and things. Uh, much like the area I'm from in Pennsylvania, in the coal and steel area, where people like uh, Frick and Carnegie, you've heard of Carnegie Hall, Carnegie this and Carnegie that. These people made millions and millions of dollars, and they donated a lot to, to the community. There was a lot of people in this community like that. So it was a city that was a very giving city, uh, having a great wealth. And uh, another thing that made it famous was it was a, uh, had a medical uh, center there, a medical college actually, and they had a, an, an eye treatment. Uh, it's a terrible thing to lose your eyesight. You, you, some of you, uh, like me, have to wear glasses and 
and uh, you know what it would be like if you couldn't see. Uh, my wife and I have interpreted for deaf people who were also blind. That's a terrible, terrible handicap. And uh, eye service was a, a thing that they were noted for. They would come from all over to come here to have eyes treated, and it was some type of a salve that they had. There's no record of the founding of this church, and there's no a church or building there or city there now. It's, it's just gone. It's nothing after being such a great city. Uh, God, of course, completes his works in a series of seven. This is the seventh church. So, therefore, this is the last church. This church will bring to, to conclusion uh, the Lord's prophetic view of church history. And we've been giving you the little chart that gives you the outline how many years that uh, this would happen. This one here uh, began in about 1950, and of course it continues until the rapture. And so we're in that time today. And some of us, as I mentioned before, I figured it out, you'd have to be 70 or older, I think, uh, to be living uh, back in the uh, 50s. And this was the change from the Philadelphian age to the Laodicean age. The Philadelphian age, uh, there was a church that uh, the Lord had, had uh, nothing bad to say about. And, and we pointed that out. Now this week, this church in Laodicea, he has nothing good to say about it. And so uh, there's a drastic, uh, drastic uh, change here. It's uh, during the 20th, the end of the 20th, and, uh, and of course now the 21st century uh, that this uh, church represents. Christ is seen here in this church outside. This, as you notice on your chart, is a church that's not centered on God's word, but it's a church where people are ruling. They have their committees, they have their boards, they have their uh, plans and so <coughs> forth. And uh, so they had a completely different operation, but God didn't have any place in this church. He's seen outside the church standing at the door knocking, uh, offering his, uh, his help. The, the virgin birth, the vicarious atonement, the bodily resurrection uh, is very much denied today. Uh, you tell people you believe the Bible is the word of God and has no errors and people look at you like you're some kind of a nut. But uh, that's because you're living in this age where the popular thing is, is to just explain it away. You take a little bit of this and put it in with a little bit of that and you make it say what you want. And that's what happens uh, in this age. Now, we look in verse 14 here as we continue, and it says, These things saith the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. This is how he introduces himself to this church. And each time, of course, he will introduce himself. And, and the introduction gives you the, the, the mission or the reason that he's dealing with this church or has this church as one of the examples that holds up this period of time as we live today. The word amen, that's a word you're 
hearing less and less. I know I'm a, an old fuddy-dud and I'm funny in my ways, but um, I'd rather say amen than this. You know what this tells me? You're recognizing the person. You're applauding the person, maybe the song they sang or something they said or whatever. I've heard preaching interrupted by. Uh, that's a worldly thing that's just not, has not been that long going. If you've lived long enough, you've never heard that before until more recent years. Amen is the proper thing to say. And the reason that he introduces himself here uh, as the amen, uh, that word is translated from the Hebrew into the Greek and the English, and, and it means truth. A simple definition. Amen means truth. And, uh, of course, he is the amen. Everything he says, no one else can say that. No one else in history have you ever heard written about that's referred to as the amen. <laughs> they would be lying if they did because he is truth and all truth is in him. Uh, he says, I am the truth, John 14, 6, that you know, you know well. Now what the church of Laodicea should have been and failed to be, Christ is. Uh, they were not truthful, he was. The true and faithful witness, he says. A equivalent also to the word amen is the word verily. And I want you to look with me to John chapter 5 and verse number 24 because here's an example of what I'm going to say. John 5 and verse 24. Right book at the wrong pew. Back here, John. My hand shakes so bad, it's hard for me to turn pages. And if I could write, I'd write these verses down. And if I, they still had typewriters, I'd type it. But if I wrote it down, I wouldn't be able to read it. It'd be in hieroglyphics, and I never studied that. But uh, here's what it says. If you, have, if you have your place here, in John chapter 5, verse 24. Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that heareth my word and believeth on him that sent me hath everlasting life, and shall not come into condemnation, but is passed from death unto life. He says, verily, verily. Twenty-five times you'll find that connection. Verily, verily. What he's saying here is truly, truly, or amen, amen. Uh, it is true. It is true. And when uh, a preacher's preaching or a teacher's teaching and they bring forth a truth and you want to uh, amplify that truth, you could say amen. That's true. That is true. Uh, verily, verily is the same way it's expressed in Scripture. And uh, he says here, also in uh, verse 14, I am the beginning of the creation of God. Now, don't be uh, misunderstood here. 
or misunderstand here. This, this does not mean that he is the first of God's creation. He was not created. You read in John chapter number 1 very clearly in the beginning was a word and the word was with God and the word was God. And the Jehovah's Witness had to change that in their Bible. Uh, he had to be the word was a God. And uh, of course they, they couldn't have that because they don't believe Jesus is God. So they had to change the Bible. And they don't go by the King James Version. They go by uh, New World Translation or something. I forget what it is. doesn't matter. Don't read it. Read the Bible. Uh, <laughs> the beginning of the creation of God. Uh, it means the one whom created all things. He was in the beginning of creation. All things, the Bible tells us, were made by him. John 1, 3. And of course, we know that he is the creator, not only of the material things, but of the spiritual things as well. In other words, all the things you see and all the things you don't see that are here. He created them also. And uh, that's, that's important for this church to know who it was that is talking to them. He is the amen. He is the truth. He is the only one that is always truthful. And he is uh, at, uh, created in the beginning or beginning of the creation of God. He says all things were made by him in, in John chapter 1 verse 3. I already read that. Now creation uh, I've, I've read in a book a uh, Brother, the Sunday school teacher let me use, he mentions that he didn't know where he'd heard it or where he'd read it, but uh, he remembers it being presented that uh, there was a natural creation, and of course that's recorded in the book of Genesis, and that God placed Adam over that creation. He set him as the head, okay? And then there was a, a, a um, national uh, creation, uh, and that was when he, he, placed, uh, uh, he placed Abraham over that creation. But sin, ever since Adam, sin entered into the world and death by sin. So death passed upon all men. You know that, John 5, 12. But so now... We have a new creation. And of course that new creation head is Christ. Christ is the head of the new creation. In this sense, he is also the beginning of the creation of God. Uh, the reason that he has written this letter is that they thought that they were self-sufficient. You know what? One of the greatest religions today, man-made religion, that's what religion is, man-made. That's man working, trying to reach up to God. Salvation is by grace where God reached down to man. A big difference. And, and, and uh, so don't try to be religious. Try to be like Christ. <laughs> try to be Christian, Christ-like. That's, that's the object. 
But the, uh, this church thought they were self-sufficient because they were humanistic. Uh, they, they, they believed man was God. And you hear that today. You're, you're not too many years old. It's been a lot of years now. But back years ago, there was an Episcopalian priest uh, that wrote a book, and he said, God is dead. Oh, it was real popular. A lot of people have wanted that to be true. <laughs> God isn't dead. That, that poor uh, lost sinner is dead, probably crying out to God now for mercy, but uh, God is not dead. He, he says to this church, this, this uh, one here, and this is his admonition, uh, again, there's no approval of anything in this church. Of this age we're living in now, we're talking about. And he says, I know thy works. Now, he knows our works, whether they're good or bad. And you're not going to hide anything from God. If, if you think so, read uh, Hebrews 4.13. Uh, you're not going to hide anything from God. He says here, I know thy works, that thou, uh, thou art, art neither cold nor hot. I would that thou were that thou were cold or hot, so then because thou art lukewarm, and neither cold nor hot, I will spew thee out of my mouth. I told you maybe maybe I didn't, but I actually did preach a message when I was in Florida. I was pastor was away, and uh, occasionally I would I would preach, or one of the other preachers would preach. But at this time, I was preaching it, and the title of my message, when I come back, he reminded me what my message was. <laughs> the title of my message was, Christians That Make Makes God Sick. It sounds rough, doesn't it? I didn't say that. God said that. God said that. He said, I know thy works, that thou art neither cold nor hot, in verse 15. I would thou wert cold or hot, verse 16, so then because thou art lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will spew thee out of my mouth. That word spew would be, the dictionary would say regurgitate. Country boys say vomit. <laughs> I mean, that means the same. It's throw up. So Foul on your stomach that you don't want it in your being. You throw it up. And that's what God told him that he was, he was doing, he was going to do to this church if they didn't straighten up. There's some religious people, in other words, that, that do make God sick. Who are they? There were people that are half-hearted, people who are... Uh, you know, uh, fence straddlers, as we used to say, not in, not out, middle of roaders. Half-hearted people will paralyze any church. You can have a whole lot of people in a church, and a church will not be where it's fit. Probably where that comes from, I don't know. It's another way of saying spitting it out of your mouth. But there's a lot of churches like that. Well, this church was like that. 
because they were lukewarm. He was spewed them out of his mouth. Their major problem lay in the fact that they were not hot. Hot, hot the, the word hot uh, means zest or, or, or fervent would be another word to define it. They were, they were not boiling hot. They were neither hot nor cold. He wanted them hot. He wanted them fervent. No enthusiasm, no emotion, no zeal, no urgency. God said people like that just makes him sick. A playing church. So much does that done today. So many churches play that well, they don't even know they're playing. They don't know they're playing. This is a very forceful expression that, that the Lord Jews hear. It is possible then for the reason that some people who are religious, you know, I often thought hell's going to have an awful lot of people. The Bible says it was enlarged to be able to hold all the non-believers. It was made for the devil and his angels. God never intended anybody to go there. But because they rejected him, he said, well, here's where you're going. And so he made it larger. And it's a, it's a terrible thought today. I think of people, uh, you know, the, the drunkards, the murderers, whoremongers, people like that. Uh, they go to hell and, and it, it hurts you to think of it. Some of you, and I know in my family, I'm sure, there were some that uh, would be of that description. They always told me that if your name wasn't Johnson, you must be a horse thief because everybody's name used to be Johnson. That's why there's so many people named Johnson. <laughs> I'm not saying anything. That's just what I've heard. But anyhow, these, these folks here uh, had a pretty bad reputation. Because thou sayest, I am rich, in verse 17 there, look at it. Because thou sayest I am rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing and, and knowest not that thou art wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. Boy, he's, he's laying it on him. Think of that. They thought there's uh, two phases here that really sums up this whole verse. One is, thou sayest, the other is, knowest not. They thought they were good people with all their buildings and all their wealth and all their possessions and all the things they've done and, and helping humanity and being good citizens and, and so forth. And they thought they were so good, but they didn't know that they made God sick because they had their eyes on nothing more than the material things. It was their estimate of themselves compared to Christ's declaration of their true condition. We need this, this, the gift of salvation so that the Holy Spirit 
can allow us to see ourselves as the Lord sees us. Because if you only have natural eyes, you can get pretty puffed up. Especially living in a country like this, where we're not we're going downhill now, but we were on the mountaintop for a long time. And I mean, this was a, a wonderful place to live. The word miserable here in verse 17, it, it means uh, pitiful. These people were to be pitied. Today, the average person holds them up. The average person envies this, this kind of a church. My, look at their big buildings. Look at the, all their possessions. Look how many people they have going there. They, they possess so much of this life and yet have nothing in the life to come. They were rich in material things, prosperous. This city was very wealthy. I mean, they traveled the world, these people did. They, they were very wealthy people. And you think of the day now, in the, in the realm of so-called Christendom today. I mentioned here a few weeks ago, the Mormon church, I saw an, an issue on one of those news specials where they uh, did a segment on the Mormon church, uh, and they, they had had to pay a couple million dollars in fines. Uh, here they exposed that they possess a, a bank balance of a hundred billion dollars. Now, those Mormons have some money, but they don't have anything compared to Catholics. <laughs> Catholics have a lot more than that. Mormons are, are big dogs on the walk here in America, but they're not too much outside of America. Sometimes you wonder how all these cults you, if you study them, you know they started in the 1800s around an era. That's about the time our government began to pass the Bill of Rights and the fact that you could worship God and nobody could uh, keep you from worshiping him, worshiping him anywhere you want. And so it was public then. They had all these cults start. Before then, they would have tarred and feathered them. But the law protects them. And so they thrive today. And there are so many of them. So many of them. Reminds me of the illustration of the, the man. I told you I'd visited a church in Tampa called Ottawa Baptist Church. Their first phase of their building program. And I think they had three or four phases. But uh, besides buying the 200 and some acres of ground, they built their first building was $55 million. And then as soon as they got their finances taken care of and a little steady again, they had expansion programs. I, I walked through that church and uh, I was amazed. They had one room about half the size of this where they're very steep, like they do in some colleges for a lecture hall where, you know, the students, uh, the teachers here, and he's not very far from any of them. He can look them all right in the eye. I have been in churches uh, like that, and uh, it's not a bad idea, really. 
people come forward, they just start. They can't stop coming forward. <laughs> Had a church in Columbus, Ohio, the, the slam on that auditorium was about like that. I mean, a big church, a couple thousand. Columbus Baptist Temple was the name of it. But um, this man visited a church like that, and they gave him the tour. They showed him the buildings. Oh, he took him through and showed him the chandeliers and the draperies and the pews and the paddings on the pews and, and, and everything. And, he, and, he, and the guy told me, he said, if, if you think we have it, you're right, we have it. There's nothing we don't have. And the guy said, well, when's the last time you had revival? And Deacon kind of <clears throat> cleared his throat and stuttered a little bit and said, "Well, now we don't have those things here. We don't. We don't. We don't have revivals. Uh, look at what we got. We don't need revival." Well, that's a poor church. That's like this church. Thought he thought they were rich and had everything, but they have nothing. It's pretty hard the way the Lord describes this church, but He makes an appeal to them. In verses 18 and 19, 20, he says, I counsel thee, this is his request now, to buy of me gold tried in the fire. And by the way, this isn't the gold that um, you think of, you know, the material gold. He's speaking of righteousness, God's righteousness. Eternal gold, that's what that is. That's, that's what, worth more than money. That's stuff that money can't buy. But he says, Buy of me gold tried in the fire that thou mayest be rich, and white raiment that thou mayest be clothed, that the shame of thy nakedness do not appear, and, and anoint thine eyes with eye salve that thou mayest see. Oh, they thought they were rich and paraded around in their beautiful robes and this city was noted for a, a wool that they made that was a black wool, shiny. And so the Lord says, you think that's nice. That's not covering your nakedness. I know what you are. I know your works, that you're neither hot nor cold. You may have those fine garments on, and you may have money in the bank and all the bills paid, and then he says to, to anoint your eyes with eyes, sad, because you have eyes and you think you see, but you see it not. You don't see the spiritual things. This world today doesn't know much about spiritual things. They think people uh, like you and I that would come out on a mid, midweek service like this and study a book, particularly the book of Revelation. I mean, good gracious, stay away from that thing. When God makes a promise written in it, wrote it down right in the Bible, that he'll bless you if you read and study and obey this book, and the world says stay away from it. A lot of preachers won't preach it, churches won't <coughs> teach it. This is the kind of world we live in today. He tells them to buy of him. Christ was really trying to get them to, to hear and heed his word. He said, buy of me raiment that thou might be clothed. 
that the shame of thy nakedness, there in verse 8, uh, would not appear. Isn't it shame when your hand shakes so bad you can't write, can't hold up a piece of paper? <laughs> and my wife drove to church tonight, and I come out of that car, I was really shame. <laughs> no, no, I, I, uh, I've got to be careful because I, she's starting to do more to driving. The sin of Adam and Eve, of course, you remember, they they took fig leaves and tried to cover their nakedness. They didn't hide anything from God. And uh, when God confronted them, they were embarrassed. God had to make us take an animal and sacrifice to get its hide to cover them. And no forgiveness of sin without the shedding of blood, my friend. All of man's righteous deeds, the Bible says, are as filthy rags. I mean, that's the righteous deeds. That's the good things you think you're doing. That's the, the things that you, you, you pry, you're proud of, and you let people know you've done this, or we've done this, or look what we have. The Bible says again, Isaiah 64, 6, they're nothing more than filthy rags. They're like a cloak. It says uh, they had religion. You know what religion is? It's like a cloak that you put on. What they needed was Christianity, which is a life put in. But they had religion, but they didn't have Christ. The white raiment is divine righteousness, which God imputes. And to those who are saved, we're told that the righteousness of Christ is imputed in us. And when God sees us, he doesn't see an old nasty rotten sinner that we are, but he sees the precious blood of Christ and his righteousness. What, what a blessing it is to be saved. What a blessing it is to have our eyes anointed and have the spiritual blindness taken away. Christ could open their ears. He could open their eyes as well. And they could see what they really were. They could perceive the spiritual world that they uh, lived in. A natural man, the Bible says, receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God. It says they're foolishness unto him. Neither can he know them. And in 1 Corinthians uh, and uh, chapter 1, verse 18, you remember the scripture that talks about how that preaching to a lost man is foolishness. They come to hear a preacher preach and he'll pour his heart out and share the word of God and have the power of the Holy Spirit. And they just sit back and say, well, what in the world kind of a nut is that? They think it's foolishness. The same verse tells us that it is the power of God. It's the power of God. As many, he says in verse 19, as many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Be zealous, therefore, and repent. That tells us there are some saved people in this church. They're a very minority, I'm sure. But he says, as many as I love, those who love, he's going to rebuke if you live in this kind of a situation and don't stand against it and 
and take a stand. You may be thrown out on your ear, but it's better to be out there with Christ than inside with Christ knocking, trying to get in. He said, Behold, I stand in verse 20. I want to have time to do this. I've got about 15 minutes. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come in to him and will sup with him and he with me. Uh, you need to notice very clearly, underline those words, if any man. I don't care how rotten the church you're in and how rotten the society you live in and the rotten the age you live that makes God sick. Any person. God speaks to individuals. You know why? We're one, one at a time. We used to have a t-shirt. We had a soul winning program in a church in Finley, Ohio, I believe it was. And we had a t-shirt that said one by one. But it's W-O-N by O-O-N-E. One by one. See? But that's how we're all saved. One. They didn't save you, but they gave you the gospel and you believed Christ saves you. The gospel of Christ is what saved you. He says, I stand at the door and knock. And if any man hear my voice, I will come in to him. And I will sup with him and he with me. Even in the Laodicean age, where we find the worst of the seven churches, our Lord stands at the door and appeals. The man that painted that picture that I know many of you, perhaps all of you have seen, of the door, kind of a, a garden scene with a door and Jesus knocking at the door. And the man said to him one time, well, you have a mistake. He said, what do you mean? Well, what's a mistake? He said, you didn't put a, a latch. He said, there's not a latch on there. As a, if Christ goes in, you have to let him in. He's not going to break down the door. He's gonna, not going to force his way in. You have to allow him, appealing to each one, one at a time, individually. That's the way it's always been. The world's Savior is still. He's still today waiting outside so many hearts still seeking earnestly, desires that none should perish, but all should come to, to, to God. Every, God's will is, you know, and I don't want to get too deep in theology and get some of you confused, but let me just say this. When Christ died on the cross, he died for all. And I'll tell you right now, if you have universalism in your background, don't you think for a minute that I believe in that nut, uh, that hogwash. Universalism believes that everybody eventually will go to heaven, you know, one this way, one that way. For the Bible says Christ died for all. He did. That's why little babies, when they die, they go to heaven. That's why people who are born... Uh, uh, technically, they're called idiots. An IQ of less than three uh, is, a, is an idiot. And, and um, 
that person can never have a, a rational, comprehensive mind. And that person, I don't care if he lived to be a hundred, when they die, they go to heaven. Christ died for all, but those who have sinned, <laughs> those who have sinned needs a Savior. And those who are sinned, if they don't get a Savior, they're going to split hell wide open. There's only two places. It's going to be one or the other. God doesn't want anybody to go to hell. His desire is that no one should perish, not a one. And Christ died sufficient for all to be saved. But the sad thing is, most people will not be saved. And, and the age we live today is so prevalent. But God can do what he can do when he is elected not to break the door down. We're not Calvinists. I've heard Calvinists give testimonies that when they got saved, a team of horses couldn't have kept them from that altar. God was pulling them there and there's no way they could not go. That's not true. He gives an invitation. He gives a plea. Let me close by saying it this way. And, and, and I, I know we've got maybe a minute or two short, but that's all right. It's getting dark, and my son gets upset if I'm trying to drive or she's driving. That's why she's driving. She can get away with more than I can. And so... so but, but, you know, I, I like to say it this way. When I come out of the college, I went back to the church where I surrendered to preach, called Home Church there in Ohio. And uh, when I was in Ohio in the church, uh, one of the responsibilities I had was to be in charge of the visitation program. Now, uh, that's what it was. Now, make clear you understand this because this is something the church today, even good churches have gotten away from. We made a list and gathered the cards. Anybody in our church that was sick or absent, even if we knew they were sick, even if we knew they'd been out of town, their name was on a card and they were given about five or six cards to each couple, whether it be two men, two ladies, husband, wife, whatever, a teenager and an adult, not two teens together. No, that's, that'd be terrible. But we, we, we organized it, and they went out on visitation. Now, on visitation... Oftentimes, you were given the privilege and opportunity to win somebody to Christ. Because some of those half-hearted, fence-setter Christian members of our church, whose name was on the church roll, but was not, was not on heaven's roll, and because they were convicted of the Holy Spirit, and we'd go in a loving way, and they'd go over there and holler at them or say, well, you rascal, why do you, I have to bring the book. If I think I, would, I have a 
copy of the records of the book, My Ancestors, the one I told you started in 1775, and I, I'll let you have an idea of what the Baptists did then. It's a good racist. But we didn't, we weren't unpleasant, or we were loving. We too had been in that place. Thank God somebody called on us. But then we, sometimes you'll find them that's not saved. Sometimes they'll have somebody in their family that's not saved. Or maybe they'll give you names of people they want you to visit who need salvation. And, and then you go soul winning. Visitation and soul winning are two different things. Visitation, every church needs to do. Every sick person, every elderly person. Our ministry here with the uh, recordings that they do. What a great tool that is for shut-ins. You can show them how to do that, how to get on there and, and listen to the Sunday message. What a, what a privilege it would be. But what I'm saying is this. The Lord wouldn't knock that door down. And of all the years and all the doors I've knocked on, and in Finley, Ohio, I've knocked on every single door twice. A town of about 40-some thousand people, and there's quite a few doors. But we go out systematically, line it out, and go out visiting, put out literature, just make contact. But I never one time broke the door down. But many times I'd go to a door and knock, and I'm talking about Christian members now, I mean, members of the church. They said they were Christians. You'd hear sounds in there. You knew somebody was in there, but when you knock, you got quiet. I mean, you could, you, there was not a sound heard, but I never knocked the door down. And the Lord won't knock the door down either. You must welcome him into your heart. If you have, thank God. If you haven't, please do. I don't care who you are, what your background, what you said in the past, make sure you're a child of God. Because there's a lot of so-called Christians in this age who are not saved. And many of them are church members. Some of them are preachers. You could go to Matthew chapter 7. The Sermon on the Mount, the last chapter, chapter 7. Or you can go to the Olivet Discourse, Matthew 24, 25, the last chapter, the end, and read about the virgins. They had the appearance, but they didn't have the Holy Spirit. They were never saved. If you have not the Spirit, you're none of His. Father, help us as we study these verses and these chapters to come. And we begin to look at the future.